It's another week and another edition of the Pat Richter Show right here on 100.5 ESPN, the ESPN app, and Wisconsin On Demand. How you doing, everybody? Happy Saturday. Alex Strofe with you alongside former UW Athletic Director, the man and the legend, the great Pat Richter. Pat, how are you this week? Alex, doing well. How are you today? Oh, much better than I was the last couple weeks. Good to be out of quarantine and back into civilization. <laughs> uh, as I uh, as I had a nice battle there with uh, the, the the good old the good old vid, as I think people call it. So, uh, but I'm I'm you back. Had the real one. You didn't have the omicron. You had the real one. Then. I had the real one. Yeah, it uh, it was no fun. But I'm but I'm alive. I'm well. I'm feeling a lot better. So that's the good stuff. But um, lots going on in the world of sports, Pat. I guess let's start with the NBA playoffs because I think that's kind of the big thing going on right now as we record uh, the Bucks and Bulls tied up at one game apiece. But uh, the NBA playoffs, always fun. A lot of, uh, lot of memorable performances come this time of year. And uh, we've seen a couple already. Giannis on, uh, on Easter Sunday was terrific. DeMar DeRozan responds earlier this week with 41 points. It's just kind of that uh, the NBA playoffs always bring those big moments, it feels, Pat. Yeah, well, it's kind of like the uh, the format of the games, you know. You, I've always said, and uh, I, I'm not a big you know watcher for of uh, pro basketball, but uh, it always seemed to me that the last three minutes of the game is really where it's at for the most part, and uh, everything kind of goes back and forth, back and forth, and sloppy play, this and that, and whatever, and then all of a sudden. Get serious for the last ten minutes and the three minutes that comes down to the crunch time, especially if the, you know the teams are close. I mean, some teams just aren't in the, in the games at all. And uh, but it's just you know I think people get kind of lulled to sleep a little bit. This is probably one of the more physical sports of any. I mean, in football, I mean, on your body, it's really a very difficult sport. And you know these guys are six five, six eight, six ten, seven foot. 300 some pounds. I mean, it's it's hard work beating around them, picks and all those types of things. And it's, uh, but it, it, the accuracy of these guys is just incredible. It kind of reminds you of professional golf. I mean, every shot seems to be perfect, but for the most part, like DeRozan last night and on uh, on Wednesday night was just incredible. I mean, he every time he went up in the air, you knew he was going to hit it, and it was just a, a clean net shot and uh, terrific and. And yet, when they're not on things like this, uh, things are going kind of sideways. And uh, I think that Middleton, until he got hurt, you know, you kind of had an off and on game. And the first half, he was really wasn't to be seen. Even the announcers caught on to it and said, you know, it's just as he seemed to be like an out of body experience or something. Second half, he was lights out until he got injured, and that's really too bad because they they need all three guys. They had a stat that they put up in terms of. Uh, how they did with the three big three, and uh, when any one of the three guys are out, uh, the record drops almost to 500 from 700. So it's going to be a very difficult uh, road to hoe. Somebody's going to have to step it up. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, that's a, that's an interesting stat. I didn't even catch Pat uh, that that they just don't win as much, which it makes sense, obviously, with all three of Drew Holiday, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Chris Middleton aren't on the floor together. Uh, but you know we're two games into this series, Pat. I, I know you're a Bucks fan. I know that's your allegiance lies there as well, Wisconsin-wise, uh, with, with the Bucks. Uh, what do you make of this team? Obviously, Chris Middleton, as you mentioned, getting hurt changes things dramatically, depending on what the timeline of his, his injury will be. But uh, but but you feel pretty good about their chances to uh, to win another title this year. 
Well, I tell you, I'd have to be really skeptical with the Middleton situation. I mean, that's that's really makes it more difficult. And I, I think that uh, for the most part, you could chalk up last uh, the Wednesday's game in terms of the way they played as just a team that really, you know, really wasn't into it to start with, and they kind of took it for granted. They won, I guess, sixteen or seventeen games against uh, the Bulls, and uh, and they kind of uh, even the guys announcing kind of picked it up on it. And they just said they kind of took it easy, and it seemed like a lot of carelessness, a lot of turnovers, uh, jumping in the air, finding somebody to throw it to once you're up in the air, things like this. But I think the real key is going to be Middleton. I mean, you could see what happened in the second half when he got on fire and he was much more engaged, fired everybody up. Uh, He's a team leader as well. And uh, the problem is if, if, if it's a... MCL sprain, which is a knee sprain, certainly not as serious as an ACL tear, but an MCL sprain, uh, they mentioned that uh, somebody had one of those and it was about a two- to three-week proposition. So if, it, if in fact, it was diagnosed and uh, we're on, on Thursday and they really haven't gotten the definitive answer yet, if, in fact, it's an MCL sprain, mild as it might be, it's probably still going to be a week or two the optimistic most, and then having come back and being a little bit kind of hobbled up a little bit. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with that because that'll be the key to everything. If uh, Middleton can't go, yeah. you know, you've got Drew Holiday, obviously, and you've got to have, uh, uh, you know, uh, Moy Matthews is doing a pretty good job. He ate some threes the other night, and he's done a good job, but still you can't. But Matt Middleton was the key guy last year when they got down to crunch time. It was him who made the mm-hmm. key baskets, and that's what you need him for. And so it's going to be really difficult times, especially now that you're going to go on the road a little bit. And they're going to have to pick off one of these games uh, on the road and uh, steal one, and so to speak, and kind of stretch this thing out for, for if, in fact, he's got a mild sprain and can get back stretch it out so he can get an opportunity to get into playoffs down the road but it's going to be a it's going to be tough I mean, Chicago's done well and uh, and they're playing with a little bit of a banged up and if ball doesn't play uh, right, right. he's he's a key guy but it just seemed like they had five guys that could hit the, the three-pointer anytime they wanted and the, the big guys did a great job and when they can key on Giannis and not worry about anybody else uh, it's going to be really tough yeah, no that that's a uh, that's well said. This is the Pat Richter show. He's Pat Richter. I'm Alex Drove talking a little Bucks, Bulls, and NBA playoffs. So, Pat, I guess I'm just curious to know because you obviously had a had a professional career in the NFL. Uh, was there ever an injury you sustained that 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 you were really concerned about? Maybe it it, it wasn't as severe as maybe you initially thought, or or anything you know comparable to uh, the, the MCL sprain that Chris Middleton's dealing with. Any any injuries in your career, Pat? Oh, where do you want me to start? <laughs> I mean, it's not a not a question so much of muscle pulls and things like that. Those are you kind of given, but with the broken bones, and I could start at the top of the head and go down and say, really? okay, I had two broke two broken noses, some broken teeth, had two broken collarbones, uh, had a lacerated kidney, had uh, I've had two uh, knee replacements, I've had one. A hip replacement. I've had a back surgery. I've had a sprained knee, a compression fracture of the back that I wasn't aware of, and broken toes and, and miscellaneous other things like that. And so, it's more broken bone stuff. And so, okay. 
the more the most difficult one probably the serious one which I didn't really take very seriously at the time was the lacerated kidney because I caught a pass in an early preseason was hit from the side right above my hip bone and it uh it lacerated the kidney and so it, I don't want to get into details but you have to have zero blood in order to let you play and things like that. so it was something that happened you know 50 some years ago but uh at the time, it wasn't, uh, you, you think you're bulletproof, but the more you start to realize you can't do much without your kidney. So yeah. it, that was probably the most serious one. Oh, geez. Yeah, that doesn't sound like any fun at all. But I also can't help but I heard you say not one but two broken noses. How'd, how'd you break it twice? Well, the one was in a hamburger drill. Lombardi came okay. in and... Uh, and uh, the uh, it was a linebacker guy. I had a single bar in my mask, and he got his elbow up above it and kind of mushed it around a little bit. I took a couple more blocks. Actually, Lombardi thought that was uh, a good a good thing. And uh, and then the other one is uh, was not as a uh, as a professional football. It was a it was summer baseball, college baseball league, and I hit hit with a fastball across the nose, side armor, and uh, that was kind of a softened it up for the, for the next one, which was when Lombardi was there. Wow. Okay. Well, there you go. Interesting. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that because injuries I'll freak me out. out of the way of a sidearm fastball. I've got a big nose, Pat, so broken noses scare me, man. I've never had one, and I, I really don't want one because I do have a pretty big nose, and uh, I'm glad I've never had to deal with that. So uh, thanks for taking two well, for the team. Well, they said, the Redskins said at the time, he said, well, when you finish playing ball, you, you're going to have it fixed so you can make it back where it was before. <laughs> and I went into the doctor and I said, what's well, going to take to put it back in decent shape? He said, well, we'll re-break the nose. And I said, see you later. <laughs> he said, see, you re-break the nose. I was no no part of that, but I did have a, I guess they call it a, a lamp, not an, some kind of an ectomy where they clean out the nose and, and kind of chisel up and make it, make open up the passage and everything, yeah. which probably was worse than breaking it. Wow, interesting. I, I yeah, that freaks me out. I don't want to go through any of that ever. So. Couple fingers too. I guess I forgot about. Yeah, that. I've done that. So which finger is the most painful? Because I've broken both my pinky fingers, but never anything in the middle. You you, you ever get like a middle finger or anything? Well, I had it in the middle finger, but the, the, ironically, it was the pinky finger that uh, left hand that got it. And uh, and the big city doctor in Washington said they put a straight splint on it. When he did, when I took the splint off, my, my finger was kind of frozen straight. So the difficult was they had, they had to operate on it, and that joint is so small in the pinky finger. They had to operate on it and kind of open it up and then bend it, and uh, that was crazy enough is one of the more difficult surgeries I had in terms of painful just because in the afternoon after the surgery he wanted to get movement right away and he came in and he said let me see your hand he grabbed my hand then he kind of bent all the fingers together in a fist and, I, and about sent me to the ceiling so <laughs> it was just to see if they could bend them anyway but but that uh, those are long, long times ago. Well, their 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 stories will always tell because I'm always intrigued yep. by them. But uh, anyway, uh, hopefully Chris Middleton doesn't have to go through all that, right, Pat? I mean, uh, hopefully he can. Uh, it's pretty minor. And I, I was reading up on MCL sprains, about a minimum of about a two week, three week recovery. So hopefully he's in that range and just has to miss uh, maybe the remainder well, so of this bull series. It's an odd. Uh, it's an odd. Injury, it's yes. kind of it's on the outside. The ACL is on the inside, but the MCL is something where 
if it happens to a hockey player, they continue to play because that the skating stride has nothing to do with the oh, MCL apparently. Okay. So it's just different. It's uh, depending on the sport, but obviously with basketball, with the lateral movement, uh, with the knees and everything else, it's going to be critical. And, and you know, you have got to be careful. You got someone that's uh, got a long, you know, another reasonably long career more ahead of him, and you don't want to do something that's permanent. And uh, so. I'm sure they'll be very cautious, but certainly he'll want to play as at all possible when it got down to crunch time. Yeah, no doubt. And I still think, you know, this is the Buck series to lose. So hopefully they can get on without him and, and be rejoined by him down the road because it is a long postseason in the NBA, obviously, uh, with all the series and you got to wait for other series, Dan. So he's got time, luckily. Uh, you know, you'd rather this happen if it has to happen. You'd rather this happen in round one versus, you know, the Eastern Conference Finals or the NBA Finals. So I guess if it had to happen. We'll take it at this point. Uh, this is the Pat Richter Show here on 100.5 ESPN, the ESPN app, and Wisconsin On Demand. I'm Alex Strofe, alongside former Wisconsin Athletic Director Pat Richter. Maybe the world's, uh, maybe not the world's, but ESPN Madison's biggest Brewers fan. So we'll, we'll talk Brewers here in a second, Pat. But we've been off for a few weeks, as I mentioned at the top of the show. So I do want to get your opinion on something that happened two weeks ago in the MLB, and that is Clayton Kershaw's almost perfect game. He had a perfect game going through seven innings, through 80 pitches, and was yanked. He said he was okay with it, but a lot of uh, opinions from the outside. So I'd love to get your thoughts on it, because it really is an interesting debate uh, with Clayton Kershaw coming off the shoulder injury during the offseason um, and uh, was on a pitch count. So he threw 80 pitches, was perfect through seven innings, and they decided that's enough for Clayton Kershaw. But only 22 perfect games have been thrown in MLB history. So people were upset because he was only six outs away. Uh, I'm sure you saw this. What, what's your opinion on the whole thing? Well, when I first saw it, I said, what a shame that is. And I get kind of scored growing up in my uh, childhood and, and when your age and things like this, it was – Pitchers went nine innings, and uh, I remember Harvey Haddix, uh, and he went. Uh, he had a no hitter, I think, for eleven innings and something like. And then there were lost, wow. uh, nine to eleven innings, and he lost the game. But I think Kershaw was very uh, judicious with his words. He, I mean, he didn't want to. You could tell he was. Uh, he would have been willing to go for it, and uh, you know they kind of put it on the, the pandemic, the short season and training season and pitch count and things like this. And I think I saw Corbin Burns or someone, maybe Woodruff, had 109 pitches in uh, their recent outing. And, uh, you know, I mean, he's on a one-year contract. Not that you don't want to figure you, you, he's going to use him for a number of years to come. But still, uh, he, he's, he knows his body better than anybody. And yeah. his motion and things like this. I find it hard to believe that giving somebody an opportunity to do that, you know, and this to say it happened, you know, fairly soon on the pitch count. I mean, then it's not hardly anything that's to to, uh, to worry about if you get down to the point where you get, you know, 26 outs and things like this, and on the 27th you maybe paid pitched another 15 to 20 pitches. Yeah, you know, it just seems uh, the likelihood of him continuing. And and no hitting someone is like you say the odds are not very good, but the opportunity is there, and the fact is somebody's probably going to get a hit before he would injure his arm. So I I guess you hate to say well it's for the fans, but you know that that's not a bad way to to look at it. But I think that the uh, it just seems too many 
times that there's just the protection and the and I guess they've got themselves in that position because they've, they've kind of got everybody on a short pitch count anyway, four or five innings, and then the, then the next reliever comes in, then another right. reliever, and then another reliever after that. Uh, I just being what I used to when I was a kid, it just seems like that's overprotective. And of course, there's big money out there, but uh, it just seems like it's 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 more for the standpoint of not getting the the injury, obviously. But I think there's a there's a balance in there that maybe was could have tipped the other way, and a lot of people, baseball people, would probably say that. But they, you know, got to be very very careful what they do say, and just make sure that they kind of protect each other. Yeah, it's interesting. I wanted to get your thoughts on it, Pat, obviously, because you have the baseball background playing at UW-Madison. Uh, you know, you were a terrific three-sport athlete, so you have some perspective here. So it's it's fascinating to me. I've never played baseball competitively. I've watched a lot of it. I've covered a lot of it, uh, but I've never played it. So I don't have the player's perspective like you do. And like you said, the game has obviously changed since, uh, since your time at UW-Madison as a baseball player. But uh, it's it was still fascinating to me to hear the debate around it. And uh, the lack of disappointment from Clayton Kershaw was maybe the most surprising part to me. He was okay with being pulled, despite the amazing opportunity. Like I said, only 22 perfect games ever in MLB history. And he was, uh, he was six outs away from number 23. If I'm Clayton Kershaw, I'm going for it. I, I would rather have one of the perfect games in MLB history than a healthy shoulder, but uh, it's it's a debate I guess we can have forever because he, he was pulled out of the game uh, prior to having the opportunity. It was just it was just odd to me, Pat, really. I was I was shocked yeah. that he didn't have the opportunity. Well, it would have been a bit of interesting. I, I didn't see anything in, in print what Sandy Koufax would have thought. I mean, he's right. obviously a big a Dodger uh, supporter and follow the party line but i think as a pitcher he probably could have uh understood full well that it's you know it's a once in a lifetime deal you know worst case scenario and it's it's not a pleasant one is that you hurt your arm and you you know you go through a surgery and come back again but he's had a long career and and i think he was he's been with the dodgers for so long and and i you know i don't i don't he's not the type of person that's going to throw a hissy fit on the mound and whatever and, and dig in his heels. And he probably, I think Robert supposedly talked with him about it the inning before and kind of prepped him on it. And I think they both probably were figured, well, let's just hope that maybe he gets somebody gets a hit off him and then we don't have to worry about this. But it didn't happen that way. Not that easy. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, let's pivot to the Brewers now, Pat. Uh, kind of a rough start to the season, but they've turned it around now after the uh, the first couple of series on the road. Uh, a couple games over five hundred now at the time of recording. We saw Christian Yelich hit a grand slam last week, so we're seeing some things turn around in, in, in the way we'd like. Uh, what's your kind of early takeaway from the Brew Crew, Pat? It was a kind of a rocky start, as I mentioned, but they've turned it around. We know they have the arms. That's something we knew coming into the season, and now that we're you know, 13, 14 games in, uh, it seems like they're starting to find, find their way, hit their stride. What's kind of the early takeaway for you? Well, one first thing is they should have kept Vogelbach. <laughs> True that. <laughs> you, you, could have, you could have put all the money in the world on the fact that he either got a home run against the Brewers somewhere along the line, and that would happen because that's just the kind of kid he is. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, he was a, a lot of fun to have around and stirred things up in the locker room and was a great gamer. But he, 
he was a really a, just a, a fine addition to their program. And now, of course, Steelers have or the uh, the uh, Pirates have him. But but I think that the, you know there's a lot of new people coming around. There's been some injuries, obviously, and I think that's uh, probably the main thing and uh, that happens in in any of the uh, series is the fact that you try, you've got to be healthy, and that's very important. Uh, Urias is uh, still down, and he was coming into his own. Uh, Hira is getting a little bit better, and he had to finally get a home run. It'd be nice to get him on track so he could he's a solid player day in day out. You know, Yelich is still uh, got the home run, which is great, and another couple base hits. But still, you know, I looked at, I watched the game the other night just as it was on with the uh, Dodgers uh, game playing against the Atlanta Braves and and Bellinger, who I kind of put in the same boat as, uh, as Yelich, and, and Bellinger just seemed like he was really on top of it all and whatever. And sometimes. You know, Yelich, when he's swinging poorly and and that down and in curve, it just seemed like he's really in a, tightened up. And I, he's still not the same person he was a couple of years ago. And maybe that kneecap problem really hurt more than hurt him you know, for other reasons in terms of uh, batting. But uh, you know, it's nice to get him on track. But uh, but I think that you know, they. the the arms uh, are, are are there. The batting. He comes along. I, I like the addition of McCutcheon. I think he's he's a good one. Wong has is, is always been terrific. And, and Adamas is, stirs things up in there. And Taylor. And, and I think that they've got some really good players, it's, even though they, it just shows that they've done a great job of identifying talent and developing talent. And even people that have been there that are gone. I mean, you see Arcia. And uh, Mustakas and Narvaez, not Arvaez, but uh, many, many Pina is with uh, Atlanta that are still playing very effectively at their at their respective teams, and so they they've been managing to weave their way through the financial aspect of it to make sure they've got a competitive team. And of course, with Hader and Woodruff and Burns, and I get Peralta a little bit on track, and things will be better. And Ashby is. Uh, a little bit of a rough time, but uh, so I, I think that it just goes to show. We've talked in the last couple of years when they've gotten off to a really fast start and and get uh, really run a number of uh, sweeps and things like this, and and they get a pretty good sizable lead. That you never have too much of a lead, and this year they've now come back a little bit and uh, beaten uh, had a pretty good record after the first weekend and. Uh, and I think that that's that's indicative of really a solid team, good coaching, and uh, and the, the arms. And again, the main thing is just keep everybody healthy. And so that's the main thing. And, and if you get Yelich back on track like he was before, every time you went to bat, you kind of thought that maybe there was a chance he was going to drive somebody in and hit a, hit a you know opposite field triple or double or whatever. That uh, now you kind of worry that. Geez, don't throw that inside pitch to him because that's his weakness, and they're going to strike out. So you get a little, bit, a little defensive, but uh, it's still early in the season. But I think they're doing reasonably well, and uh, it's nice to see that they win at home. And if you can go 500 on the road, you're going to be okay. 
Yeah, true that. Uh, I know you're the biggest uh, Dan Vogelbach fan in the world, Pat. That's that's uh, been no secret with you the, the last year or so. Kind of always reminds me of Chris Farley. Huh? Yeah, right, right. I think that's a good comparison. Madison-esque, of course. Um, but uh, his replacement, the guy that's taken over first base, hasn't been too shabby either in Rowdy Tellez. He leads the team in home runs early, and that's a name you, you didn't mention. So I know how much you like Vogelbach, but you can't be too mad with Rowdy Tellez's production early, right? No, I I think the only place that uh, would have Vogelbach would be in the DH, but uh, Telez has done a great job, and he's uh, he just seems in a quiet sort of way to be real real uh, stickler in there for getting on base when the right time is, is upon him, and he's uh, done clutch things. And, and of course, it, we probably overlooked the, the defensive aspects of first base and what the you know what you need to have skill wise there, and now he's we've got somebody that's. That's that's their position, so to speak. So he's uh, done an outstanding job in that regard. And again, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I had forgotten to talk about him because he is another one of those guys that uh, with uh, the addition. If you look back three three years or so, three or four years, and the number of guys that are on the roster now from that point in time, you probably find a very short list. And so they've been able to identify good people that fit into the salary structure team players, locker room people, and uh, that's uh, indicative of a good uh, management system. Yeah, it is. That's that's a great point by you, right? I mean, th- this is a really well-run organization in a league where, you know, there's really no cap or anything like that, right? It's just uh, it's kind of go do your thing. And the Brewers, for being in a small market in comparison to some of the others, Pat, have been really well run, especially since David Stearns has kind of taken the lead on that. So uh, always a big thumbs up for me and, and hopefully another run at an NL Central title this year for Milwaukee. Yeah, I think it's a good chance. I mean, it's still, no matter whether you, you swept the type Pirates, they always seem to be difficult. The, Reds, the Cardinals are tough. The Reds are tough. The Cubs are tough. Cubs seem to be reloading a little bit, and they've always had – some decent pitching. Hendricks has been very effective against us, and uh, but they seem to have gotten some other uh, players to fill in the blank. The voids left by Bryant and Baez and uh, Rizzo, and so uh, they've done an outstanding job of putting together a nice, uh, nice roster as well. Last thing on the MLB, Pat, because it uh, kind of ties into uh, one of the conversations we have every week, which we'll get into a bit later, and that would be the name, image, likeness uh, thing in college sports. But I don't know if you saw this, but I'd love to get your thoughts on it because it's, it's tricky to me, and you might have a better perspective on it. And that's Charlie Blackman with the Colorado Rockies. He signed a, a an endorsement deal with a sports book. Um, again, I'm not sure if you saw this, Pat. I've read into it very minimally, but uh, I just thought it was interesting how, how that could work out given that an MLB player can't gamble on the MLB and now he's got an endorsement deal uh, with, with, a, with a sports book. Did you see this by chance and, and any uh, thoughts initially as I bring it up? No, I didn't, but I'm sure that Pete, Rose Pete uh, Rose's mind to it. I tell <laughs> right. you that. The question, I guess, is probably, there's probably a loophole in there. In fact, you can't bet on him. Technically, he hadn't bet on him. And I think they've kind of gone down the path far enough that it, uh, it's meaningless to say, well, you can't be affiliated because the, the league, the, the MLB has uh, endorsed them and they're going to be playing in Vegas and things like places like that. And, uh, and I think once they've, once they've crossed that bridge, 
it's pretty hard to say the players can't uh, earn some you know money for endorsing and things. What they could say is, you know, this has got a this is a great system. They've got a they're, they're a great venue to to you follow your teams and things like this, without saying, well, I'd bet on this, I'd bet on that, and uh, and so uh, you know, following my directions and things like this. They, they're probably not touting it, but it's certainly interesting. I, you can you just count on the fact that uh, once you get into this kind of uh, no man's land, so to speak, that uh, somebody's going to find a way to get around things. There's going to be a number of different ways to the game, the system, so to speak, and that's it's bound to happen once you open that door. Yeah, that's that's very true. It's sticky, but uh, we're in that new world where you know the sports books and uh, again, I know it's professional sports, but the name, image, likeness, tooth in college sports, all this stuff's getting really, really blurry and complicated. So we'll have a, a, a bigger conversation on that here in a little bit. But I do want to switch over to college hoops because uh, kind of a shocking retirement coming earlier this week out of the University of Villanova as their men's basketball head coach Jay Wright has decided to step away. So all in the matter of about 14 months, college basketball has lost the following legends at head coach, Roy Williams at UNC, coach Mike Krzyzewski at Duke, and now Jay Wright at Villanova. Three of the Blue Bloods losing their uh, head coaches in the last calendar year. And, of course, all three of those teams uh, part of the Final Four this year. Uh, I know Roy Williams obviously wasn't wasn't coaching this year, but still, uh, obviously a, a big-time player as well. So Jay Wright from Villanova, like I said, uh, only 60 years old, kind of a shocking retirement, Pat. We talked about it a, a bit off the air, but I'd love to get your thoughts on the air. What, what was your thoughts when you heard Jay Wright uh, on Tuesday going to call it a career at the, at the University of Villanova? Well, that was a big surprise. I mean, I, I didn't realize he was 60. I knew he was a young coach compared to Williams or Krzyzewski and uh, very successful uh Handled himself exceptionally well, always dressed well, and a classy guy. I mean, you never heard a bad word about Jay Wright, and uh, I'm sure if you dig up enough dirt and whatever, there's a violation someplace. There always is. But uh, the fact is that he just handled himself well, never got crazy with the officials and things like this. And uh, I think that this is, I'm sure nobody's going to say it, but well, a couple of the coaches might, but I think that this business with the NIL and uh, the transfer portal and all those kinds of things can kind of catch up on you in terms of changing your recruiting style and all the things that you've got to do. It's almost you know 24-7 recruiting now. And, uh, and he's won two championships, certainly a Hall of Fame uh, coach. And I think that he's probably, from an exposure standpoint, had a chance to get on to uh, television because of the Final Four, and uh, and I think that the uh, the opportunity for him in broadcasting and TV, uh, this is probably you know it's standing time for a guy like that to get into that business, and so he uh, he probably will have a, a kind of a you know, chance to go to a number of different networks and uh, and be a broadcaster. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that coming out. The next step would be that ESPN, CBS, or someone is yeah. 
kind of tied him up because he, he would be a good commodity and good property to have as a broadcaster. I totally agree, but I got to throw it out there because it is going to be a little period of speculation. It's a guy that's been rumored to, with ties to the NBA before. I remember when the 76ers had an opening right there in Philly. He was rumored for that job. The Los Angeles Lakers have a head coaching opportunity, Pat. You think there's any chance or, or you think broadcasting is a, is a little bit higher of a possibility for Jay Wright, it sounds? Well, I don't think he needs the money, and that would be the only reason you go to L.A. I think he's heard somebody that I would, you know, uh, value their opinion in the professional ranks and said, you know, it may be the worst job of any in the NBA because you're not really a coach anymore. And they mentioned that that uh, a couple of teams or teammates had mentioned that when they made a change, I think, with the Brooklyn Nets, and it was Steve Nash coming in. Arden and Duran, the other couple of other guys or whatever, say, well, we don't really need a coach. And so that would be a hollow kind of a little bit of money grab, so to speak. I I just don't see him. I, I, I would never have never thought him for a, per, a professional job. I just, not that his personality, isn't, his coaching isn't great, but I think he's just a, uh, he's just kind of a guy that doesn't need that kind of aggravation. And he, uh, wouldn't do it for the wrong reasons and I think that he's very satisfied doing what he's doing and uh, maybe take a year off before he looks at things but there's going to be certainly plenty of opportunities that are going to keep him uh, not up at night but thinking about who's doing what or whether or not you're running a team in professional ranks and who's uh, who's calling the shots I just don't see him doing that at all. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on that. But you did make an interesting point that I, that I kind of want to dive into a, a little bit deeper because you mentioned with all the NIL stuff going on, it is really hard as a head coach at the collegiate level to keep track of everything that's going on. I mean, holy hell, Pat. I mean, there's, there's so many things changing so quickly. So for a guy like Jay Wright or Coach K that's been in it for so long, it's got to be hard to keep up with all the rapid changes coming in that that that, that in the last year with the NL uh, the NIL thing. Uh, I always want to call it a national letter of intent, don't I? Uh, but <laughs> you get my point, right? Somebody mentioned the other day called it NIH. Yeah, right. It's it's hard to keep track of all these acronyms, uh, but but you get my point here. So, w- what do you? I mean, what's kind of your your perspective of it? Because now you're you're. You're still involved, obviously, Pat, but not as involved as you were during your time as an athletic director at Wisconsin. It's got to be crazy to keep track of all this. I can't imagine being somebody that's been in the same position without this for you know several decades yeah. and then trying to implement it uh, all of a sudden in, in the last year. It just had to be chaotic in a sense. Well, it's always been a problem, you know, just keeping track of things and making sure that somebody isn't uh, giving somebody some money or an opportunity or having a violation and things like this. And that's it was always a concern, and it's something that's very hard to control because uh, you, for example, you could go give a player $100 and somebody knows that you did, and they come in and said, well, so Alex Strofe gave a guy, player $100, and I saw him do this, and, they, and you don't know anything about it. You go, Alex, did you do this? Yes, well, there's a violation and a very difficult one. And so the control now is even less than that. And I think that you've got to make sure that most of the stuff with the FBI that just came out recently had to do with the assistance. And so you're you're putting your life on the line, not life, but your career on the line by dealing with 
coaches, assistant coaches, and everybody else, and they're the ones that kind of have control over, you know, what uh, how your life is going to be lived in terms of whether or not you're doing the right things and uh, whether things are, you know, uh, going to be uh, looked at differently because of NIL. I mean, the tendency now is to kind of say, well, you can do just about anything, and I think most people believe that that's pretty much pretty much if you need you need to get something done, you can get it done, and so I think that's what. Nick Saban and some of these others are talking about it, is that it's not a bad thing, but this is crazy because now you've got, you got a setup that's almost like NFL without salary cap, and uh, and that's not a place to good a good place to be. And so I think that that's uh, that that has become a real issue. And I think as a head coach, you know the buck stops there, and so your your career and reputation is dependent upon the people you select and. It's not an exact science. I'll, I'll guarantee you that because you want to make sure you got the right people, but you can never really know. And yeah. I think all this business with the FBI and such has kind of brought that out. It's a great point. You've always got such a unique perspective on it, Pat, so appreciate the insight there. Uh, last thing I want to get to with you, Pat, is uh, we're less than a week away now from the NFL draft. Oh, boy, it's already here. Things are flying by here in the NFL offseason. Packers currently slated with two picks in the first round. Uh, you think they're going to draft a wide receiver? Because I'm a little bit nervous that they won't listen to the fans again, Pat. We're about less than a week out. Where, what are you feeling like uh, here with the Packers in the NFL draft? Well, absent getting Debo Samuel, I think they're going yeah. to have to get a receiver. I, I kind of went through, ran that through my mind this morning. It's, it's probably un, unlikely, but if you get a couple of draft choices, good ones, you can pass out and. Uh, Somehow I get enough money in there to to, to handle him. Uh, that would be a great one. But I think certainly you know, Aaron has got his. Uh, you know, he if he's, he probably took a trip up to Green Bay after the game last night and uh, maybe did a little talking and see what the, the war room is looking like in terms of drafting. But it seems like it's pretty hard to miss that one. Uh, it would be very difficult to to miss on a receiver because there's just a lot of them out there, and I think that. There really hasn't been much talk about where is the, the next you need. Is it an offensive tackle? Is it a pass rusher, or whatever? And I think given two two uh, two picks in the first round, it's not likely to happen. And I guess the question would just be, you know, how aggressive will they be with taking these these draft picks and try to move up? Is it worthwhile to get up to uh, the second, third, fifth, tenth pick, whatever it might be? In order to get a better receiver than is going to be available if you just sit and wait, and that, and that maybe maybe a maybe a buyer in terms of, of or not a buyer but a seller in terms of making a deal yeah. for the traffic if you can guarantee yourself a good receiver down the road. And so, uh, it's it's going to be a very interesting time. But I would expect that absent anything happening, they're going to have to get after a receiver somewhere along the line, and that maybe just. Worst case scenario, which is not all that bad, just take it as it comes, taking the best receiver that they have on the board at that time, or draft up to make sure maybe to get a Jamison and Williams and things like that. So right. it's going to be interesting. It'll be a lot of fun. It always is. It always it always brings chaos and uncertainty, and we all become draft experts during uh, the three day period of the NFL draft. Even though in reality. Nobody knows how it's going to turn out, but we like to overreact. It's the fun of sports, I guess. Uh, but exactly. so, 
something we've talked about before, Pat, is, is something that, that happens just about every year, and it's always really special, I imagine, for you, especially given your background, formerly uh, athletic director at UW. But there uh, likely will be several Badgers drafted again this year. A couple guys like Logan Bruss, Leo Chanel, and Jake Ferguson all uh, looking like they could be day two or day three picks uh, here in the NFL draft. What's it mean to, to see guys from Wisconsin get drafted and get that next step uh, in the NFL? Obviously, you, you, you had it too, Pat, back in your playing days. So always really cool to see a Badger take that next step. But what's it mean for you, obviously, given, given your background and knowing you, you had gone through that experience as well? Well, it's always an indication that uh, they're, they're doing the things right. They're getting the right kind of people for success. They're developing people. Uh, I think the reputation that they have in the NFL has been a good one. I mean, in terms of linemen, I mean, we saw that in the Super Bowl uh, with respect to uh, uh, the Rams. We had a couple guys in the Super Bowl. So I, I think that if you looked at the number of draftees, that are still playing and with respect to the schools and whatever, we'd come out pretty well. And so I think they know that they get a good foundation. They, the coaches, the staff has done a great job. I mean, it used to be uh, linemen kind of was it. Now it's running backs as well, which is a great sign. And because that kind of perpetuates your recruiting process as well. So I think it's always good to see your, your alma mater's people drafted as high as possible, and then, of course, uh, to see them play. Uh, obviously, one of the great uh, examples of that is T.J. Watt. And, uh, yeah. And it just shows that uh, how, how someone can not necessarily be overlooked, but, I mean, someone from Pittsburgh saw this, that what they needed and they got him, and he's certainly been an outstanding player for them. And that's what they know that coming out of Wisconsin, that they're going to have that kind of opportunity to uh, – to draft people knowing that they're fully prepared and conditioned and understand what it is to uh, to play hard. With the seventh pick in the first round of the 1963 draft, the Washington Redskins select Pat Richter. What was the, what was your draft experience like? Obviously, the draft was a bit different back then, but what, what was uh, the experience like for you? How did you find out you were drafted? What was the timeline of getting to Washington? Bring me into that. I, I've always been curious what your draft experience was like, Pat. Well, it was odd because it was done and they drafted in December then. It wasn't okay. in April. It was so drafted in December. And at the time, basically, I was just introduced to them and uh, went to Washington to meet the people and things like this. But they knew that I was still going to be playing basketball and baseball before I made the decision. And so it was interesting because I know baseball at the end of the season, they had a fellow named Abe Gibran. And he was kind of when coach was assigned to keep an eye on me and things like this. Okay. So he came to a couple of baseball games we had, and it was funny because if if I popped up or struck out or whatever, he was one of the few guys that was cheering. And if I got a home run or a base hit or something happened good, he was kind of down in the dumps because I had an opportunity to maybe go baseball as well as, as football. And so everybody kind of looked at him and who's this guy in the stands? He was kind of a Roly poly curmudgeon guy, and <laughs> and he was, uh, but he followed around, and eventually we decided to go football. And uh, Gene Calhoun, my advisor, and and the, we went to went to the NFL rather than the AFL, and uh, that was it. So it was just, even though I was drafted in uh, in December, we didn't really do anything to sign until in May sometime. 
Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, I was curious what the process was like back then. So a little bit different than it is now, a little bit longer of a turnaround, so you had some time to prepare, whereas these days it's like, all right, you get drafted, you're on a plane the next day, and then it's OTAs a couple weeks later, right? Really fast turnaround uh, for for the uh, NFL draftees now here in 2022. So you had a little bit more time to prepare. That's nice. Well, and you didn't jump at all the money because it was it was all relative. It wasn't as right. big as you thought it was going to be. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was no urgency to run out and get a get a car, you know, things like this. And and I was interested in the opportunity possibly to play baseball, so we had to work that way out as well. Okay, interesting. I didn't realize that. So uh, you were you were as good as they say you were, Pat, at multiple sports. Uh, well, I, I always appreciate the time, my friend. We'll do it again next week. All right. Okay, Alex, good talking to you. That's the great Pat Richter, and this has been the Pat Richter Show right here at 100.5 ESPN, the ESPN app, and Wisconsin On Demand.